You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Welcome back. Yes, thank you, Professor Miller. Tremendous. Um, let me dive right into a scripture piece that I want us to think through, and then I can discuss this a little bit more. It's from Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever else you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a fair garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Many of you are familiar with Steve Deneff, Pastor Steve Deneff, he's spoken here several, Crouching Tiger, as he is affectionately known. And several years ago at his church, he went through a sermon series on Proverbs. And he made a statement that I am still ruminating over today. He said this, in today's culture, the world is not looking for an ethical answer from the church, what's right and wrong, but a practical answer. Does it work? We live in a time, he says, where people don't listen to their, your arguments. They watch your life. I think he's right. And we have a word for what he is describing, and that word is wisdom. So today in chapel, it's the, the start of a new year. Ben Black reminded me this morning it's actually the start of a new decade that I need to be uh, reminded of again and again. So welcome to the 2020 decade. And so I, I wanted to get practical, and I wanted to talk to you about wisdom and to elevate this idea of wisdom. Now, in our time together, we're certainly not going to plumb the depths of wisdom, although you might during your time here at Asbury University. But I do want to speak specifically to what I will describe as unconventional wisdom the kind of advice that might go against the grain of what you might otherwise imbibe on a day-to-day -day basis in the culture. And specifically, this is wisdom that is grounded within our faith tradition. So let me jump right into this. First is a mental diet. I want you to have a mental diet or another expression I like very much, a well-furnished mind. In a world that encourages you to consume everything in relation to what you see and to what you hear and to what you read, to have a mental diet. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to talk with an evangelical thought leader who I'll leave unnamed, but I was studying automation and artificial intelligence around that time. And at the end of our conversation, he made a very curious statement. He said, wouldn't it be amazing if our brains were connected to the internet? And I thought, no. <laughs> he said, how much more would we image the creator if we were connected to the internet because then we would be all-knowing? And I didn't respond to that. I actually got off the phone at that point. It was a good conversation. But I thought to myself, I don't want to be all-knowing. Now, there's some great stuff on the internet. I reference it almost daily. But there's also a lot of falsity. There's a lot of smut. There's a lot of 
misinformation. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of fear. I don't want that in my mind because you and I, we discern what we put into our bodies every day for the most part. We discern what we put into our living spaces, our furnishings. We even discern what we put into our letters, our social media posts, the words that we use. Why would we not be all the more discerning about what we put into our minds? Now, I'm not talking about what you're allowed to put into your mind, what you're allowed to read, watch, and listen to. I'm asking, what do you want to have in there? If you say, am I allowed to watch that? Am I allowed to hear that? Am I allowed to read that? I personally think you're asking the wrong set of questions. Rather, you should ask in watching, reading, hearing, what am I becoming? What does your consumption do for you? What does it do in you? What does it do to you? Philippians 4.8 tells us, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Populate your imagination with that. I love this expression Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.5. He says, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, subjugating our thoughts and reconciling them with the person and teaching of Jesus. So again, I'm, I'm using this expression. There, there's a thinker named Richard Taylor. I think Dr. Bud might be the only other person in here who knows who he is. I like to describe him as the best author you've never read. And in one of his books, someone described him as having a well-furnished mind. And I thought, well, that's what I want. So what does that mean to have a mental diet and a well-furnished mind? Can I just offer you a few thoughts for you to ruminate on? First, read. Read. Yeah, amen. Hey, the good news, no, I'm serious. Your generation, and by the way, I seldom say that because I don't like things that put people in the, well, your generation does this. But I'm going to say it. You all are reading just as much, if not more, than generations that have gone before you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. But we need to be selective in what we read. I like to say don't read a lot, read a little, a lot. But I like even better a statement Dr. Erin Penner made. She said, the older I get, the more mature I get, the slower I read. And if there's anyone to pay attention to when it comes to reading, it's her. She told a wonderful story once of Dr. Strait. He was reading a book, and he'd been in there a while, and she said, what page are you on? He said, well, I'm still on page one, but it's a great page. <laughs> Love that quote. Read things that challenge you. Read things that you disagree with in your selectivity. There are books in my office that I don't subscribe to philosophically but I want to know what they think. I want to be able to identify a bad idea. Why is it bad? Why don't I agree with it? Why don't I occupy that idea as a philosophy to live by? We need to know those things. And I say that because our echo chamber, or our, our, our algorithms today, rather, are so good at sending us, uh, delivering us, 
guiding us into these echo chambers where we don't even know what another perspective might be. And in a time where discourse is so fractured and impoverished, this is an important skill. Come to my office sometime. I will show you all of the books. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. But they made their argument understandable. Related to this, a condition for a well-furnished mind is a humble attitude when you read, when you imbibe these ideas. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about an open mind, uh, which might mean you take anything in. By the way, when I think of having my brain connected to an Internet, that's an open mind. That's not what I want. I'm talking about a kind of intellectual humility where you listen, but you do it in a discerning manner. It's this great quote, dogmatism is when we stop listening. That really caught my attention several years ago. What is dogmatism? When you stop listening. And I'll tell you that the people that I most deeply respect, they are skilled in the art of listening to others. Another great quote. I love quotes. Stanley Wiersma, uh, he was a former English professor, I believe, at Calvin. He said, we must pursue truth and certainty, but we must be suspicious when it comes to us too glibly. Now, I believe in truth, and I believe in certainty, and Asbury community, I believe in our collective pursuit of that. But we need to recognize that we have bias. We are riddled with biases. We know that we suffer from motivated reasoning, processing information in unconsciously motivated ways. We believe in the wisdom of those who have gone before us, the importance of tradition, a respect for a body of knowledge. And we recognize that there are different ways to understand complex phenomena. Now let me make one more point that I think is especially important for a faith community. In this morass of intellectual complexity, we believe in the modes of authority that assist us in navigating what is good and right and true. How do you know when you're wrong? How do you navigate moral complexity? What are the standards that govern your beliefs and practices? And we say Scripture, tradition, the community of believers, the guidance of the Holy Spirit— and let me tell you, because if those things aren't my mode of authority, that means I am my mode of authority. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. Finally, a well-furnished mind relates to what you say yes to consuming, but it equally relates to what you say no to consuming. Several years ago, my son crossed the Rubicon into the teenage years, and so I thought I should write him a letter like, welcome to being a teenager. Your life will never be the same. It's going to get awful, et cetera. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to think very carefully, what, what do I really want to convey to him? That, that he could really, what are some handles I can give him? So I decided to write this quote. It's from a, a study in Scarlet, Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a great quote. He says this, I consider that a person's brain is originally like a little empty attic, and you have to stock it with such furniture as you choose. A fool takes in all the lumber of every sort that he comes across so that the knowledge that might be useful to him gets crowded out or, at best, 
is jumbled up with a lot of other things, so that he has difficulty in laying his hands upon it. Now the skillful workman is very careful indeed as to what they take into their brain attic. As I wrap this up, can I just tell you on a personal note, uh, shortly before I got married, married uh, something changed in my life where I really took seriously this idea of a mental diet. My life has never been the same. What I say no to, what I say yes to, and the disciplines associated with discerning, listening, reading, it will change your life too. And this is a place where we need to be skilled as a faith community. Hey, really quick, I have some questions here that you've probably seen, and I would like to encourage you, even if you can grab one of these, I'm not asking you to write down it, but if you can grab one, put it on your phone, write it down, and really process it for the week. That's a challenge I have to you. If my mind were a room, what would it look like? Is it furnished well, too much lumber of every sort, not enough good furnishings? Is it arranged properly? How is your mind furnished? What do I need to do to better cultivate a well-furnished mind? And what am I willing to say no to to better cultivate my mental diet? All right, point number two. Don't try to change culture. Try to create alternative cultural artifacts. One of the hallmark statements you'll hear oftentimes in Christian institutions, whether it's educational, a church, a church-based institution, is a mission to change the world, to deputize students or congregants or employees to go and to change the world. Now, the sentiment is noble, but I think it's wrong or misguided. One, I think it's naive. I uh, would point out that cultures change slowly. They change over time. They change through an array of forces. We know they change through overlapping power structures. This is how cultures change, typically. But I also think in, in addition to it being naive, it can be dangerous. I've mentioned here before from this pulpit, uh, Greg Thornberry, he's a theologian, and he's, he's made this statement. He said, you know, when I hear Christians talk about culture and changing culture, I have this image of Gandalf, arms crossed, standing at the top of a hill, staring down into Helm's Deep, judging it right? As if we are immune from culture, but somehow culture is eligible to be changed by us. But we know it's more often than not the other way around, that we are the ones changed by our culture. James Davidson Hunter says, influence is never unidirectional. So what do we do? We shouldn't try to condemn, critique, copy, or consume culture as a means to change it, says Andy Crouch. Rather, he says, we should cultivate the culture where it's good, and we should create new culture where it can be improved. In other words, what I'm telling you is, if you are disillusioned with some element of culture, create an alternative. That's the advice. I love this story. It was given years ago by Gabe Lyons. He's visited our campus before. Gabe Lyons, he's in charge of Q Ideas. He's an author, a speaker. He's an influencer. And his wife, Rebecca, is an author as well. They were having a child, and they discovered that the child had Down syndrome. And they had some questions about this, and they found there was a significant impoverishment 
as to resources to help them think about the questions they needed to be asking and answering as parents. And moreover, they discovered that 92% of Down syndrome diagnoses, many of those are false, resulted in the mothers choosing to terminate their pregnancies. He said, I didn't even believe that statistic when I saw it. It was so high. Now, here's the fascinating thing. He has all these outlets, pulpits, conferences, speaking engagements, writing, and he could have gone out and ranted about everything that's wrong with the culture, railing against this culture of death. But instead, he and his wife gathered a team together, and they wrote a prenatal pamphlet called Understanding a Down Syndrome Diagnosis. Today, it is one of the most widely referenced pamphlets in the United States for parents who are expecting a Down Syndrome child. He didn't con condemn existing culture. He didn't shrug his shoulders in resignation. He created a new alternative artifact. So let's not be people that lament the world around us. Moreover, let's not be people who passively and uncritically participate it, but let's be people who create and cultivate God-reflecting art, literature, films, products, and businesses. It sounds a little bit like Matthew 5:16. Let your light so shine so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, some questions. Where have I tried to change the world naively? Where do I need to cultivate culture that's good and right and true? Where do I need to create new cultural artifacts as an alternative? And what are the implications for my role as a student at Asbury University? Third piece of unconventional wisdom. Don't be a leader. Be a laborer. Now, don't get me wrong, I want you to be leaders, but I want you to be leaders of a certain kind. Now, you and I have read this passage several times in Philippians 2 about the mind of Christ, but sometimes I think we don't really dwell on the fullness of the implications inherent in that little passage where Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind of Christ, what are the key words? Emptied, slave, humility, obedience, death. <laughs> not popular buzzwords. And one way we might summarize this is a life of service towards others. This is one of our most salient and observable characteristics is people of faith. And your service towards other people might take you out to the forefront of society, whether it's Billy Graham or Lecrae or something like that. But it also, and I might say more likely, will take you to the fringes. I love this story. There's a Methodist woman named Mary Color White. If you go down to St. Simons, Georgia, at the Epworth Center, uh, it's a museum for Methodism, they have this fantastic exhibit on women and Methodism. And there's Mary Color White. 
She's a famous missionary in China who actually stood up to the Japanese who threatened to take over the Methodist mission in Shanghai. Very important person. She's a big deal. I'll put it that way. But in the latter part of her life, she chose to serve by going into areas and debugging, pulling grubs out of the meal so that men and women could eat food. So here's a person who's an important figure, a church leader, an author, an evangelist, a thinker, a pastor. But she chose to serve at the end of her life by doing one of the things she could do at that time. I will pull bugs out of your food so you can eat food without bugs. And this is a counterintuitive way of thinking about greatness. But that is what is in Scripture. That's what's in the narrative. We hear this again and again, to have the, the mind of Christ, or the last shall be first, and the first will be last, and that the greatest will be a servant of all, and that those who lose their life for the sake of Christ will actually find it, and that we are to take up our crosses daily. I love this story. Some of you may have heard of Dwight Robertson. He's a Wesleyan. He runs a ministry out in Colorado. I believe it's called Forge now. It used to be called Kingdom Building Ministries. And he told this story years ago where they had an outside consulting firm come into their organization. Now, their organization sends itinerant ministers out, and it's based upon praying to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And so this outside organization comes in, Secular group, they're looking at doing this 360 review of the institution. And finally, they gather Dwight and the leaders together at the end of that, and they say, you're doing some great things. This is good, this is good, this is good. But you do have one problem. This word, laborer, it's not popular. It has no traction. traction. It, doesn't, it doesn't inspire people. It's not a sexy word. The buzzword is leader. Dwight said, I smiled. My staff smiled, and I looked back and I said, I hear what you're saying. I think what you're saying makes sense, but it's not our word. That's not my word. That's God's word, and that's why we use it. We're not changing it. God's word is laborer. The people of God are men and they're women of service. Please pull one of these questions down. Where can my leadership this year come through laborership? What are my gifts and how can I use them for service to God, neighbor, and to Asbury? And where do I struggle to take on the mind of Christ? All right, last but not least, this relates to the, the last one. Use your freedom to give up freedom. <laughs> Now, before I go further, let me define what I mean by freedom. I'm very much defining it when I say give it up, the way our larger culture defines freedom. These are some of these books I have in my office I disagree with. Uh, freedom is unconstrained human activity. Or freedom is the expansion of my choices. Or freedom is realized in my individuality alone. So one can have freedom in the sense of being completely unconstrained, but I would argue that is not your most meaningful life, nor is it your most fulfilling life. So let me just let the air out of the balloon here. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, 
Freedom is not unconstrained human action, being able to do whatever you want. It is the capacity to do what you know is right. And moreover, freedom is not the expansion of choice. It is choosing that which is worthy to be chosen. And finally, freedom is not a paradigm of individuality. It's often found in our communal commitments with one another. I once heard this quote from a pop culture self-help expert, and I, I had to write it down because it captured my attention. They said, success is doing what you want to do, when you want, where you want, with whom you want, as much as you want. And let me just tell you humbly, no, it's not. That's not success. And moreover, this quote plays off of the same impoverished definition of freedom that I just mentioned. Here's why. We are a community. That's why I resonated with Dr. Baldwin's comments and Professor Miller's comments. It is exciting when you come back here. We are a community. And a community begets, it provides a kind of identity. That's another chapel. Communal, uh, our, our communal, being communally constituted or relational personhood. But our identity begets commitments that we have to one another. And those very same commitments beget limitations that we have with one another. But here's the good news. As counterintuitive as that sounds, limitation is associated with meaning. Our limitations are associated with meaning. I am a son. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an Asbury employee. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of First Alliance Church in Lexington, etc., 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 and all of these things limit what I can do. Because I'm a husband, I don't get to do whatever I want when I get home, nor should I. These things moderate my choices. These identities constrain and they guide and they govern my beliefs and my practices. But they are all associated with deep meaning in my life, rich fulfillment and long-lasting gratification. When I wrote my dissertation at the very beginning, I, I mentioned the people that were most meaningful to me, who have claims upon my life, who limit my life. But I said, because you are, I am. That was the greatest compliment I could give to them, and it's the greatest gift that they can give back to me. Let me provide another interesting example of this. Michael Sandel is a philosopher at Harvard. He's written on the ethics of biotechnology. At one of his lecture gatherings that he does in a Socratic dialogue style, he said this. He said, Aubrey de Grey is an anti-aging researcher. He thinks that the first people to live to be 1,000 years old have already been born. So then Sandel asked, how many here would like to live to 1,000 years old? Let me offer that to the group. How many of you would like to live to 1,000? Couple, yeah. Some days it sounds pretty nice. The same kind of results we had in here were the same results Sandel has had whenever he's asked this question. And here are some of the answers he received. Life is interesting because it comes to an end. Life's ending gives it meaning. One person said, if we had unlimited freedom and choice, the value of things decrease. Each day matters less and the proliferation of choice 
could be paralyzing. Even people who did say they wanted to live to 1,000 said, yeah, but, you know, I don't want to live forever. <laughs> Sandel said, why? Because meaning is strongly associated with our limits. In this particular example, death has a way of providing meaning in our life. Dave Matthews, the singer of the band that was popular when I was your age, he said, I don't want to die, obviously, but honestly, the fact that life ends is what gives it a sense of wonder. And we know the psalmist who said, teach me to number my days. A life of meaning is found, ironically, in losing ourselves to our commitments outside of ourselves, in restricting our actions, in moderating our choices, and it's found in our obligations that we have to one another. This is one of the greatest ironies of the Christian faith, by the way. In emptying myself, I become whole. In surrendering, I find my freedom. And we see the greatest example of this in the person of Jesus Christ. My friend, uh, New Testament professor Dave Smith says, the greatest miracle of Jesus Christ was the miracle he did not perform, staying on the cross when he could have come down. So how does identity and commitment moderate your freedom? Where do you find meeting at others? And is there a freedom, unconstrained action, expansion of choice, hyper-individuality that makes you feel as if you are not free? What could you empty yourself of today that would make you more whole? Let me conclude. There's a recent article I read that I'm, I'm still processing. Uh, the author, Paul Graham, opens with this sentence. He says, the most damaging thing you learned in school wasn't something you learned in any specific class. It was learning to get good grades. What does he mean by that? I think he means that there's a difference between learning to get a good grade on some form of an examination, homework, a test, a project, and truly growing as a person in knowledge and in intellect and wisdom. In other words, there might be some shortcut you can employ to do well on a test, but there is no shortcut to do well in life. This is the importance of wisdom. You see, it may be possible for you to bypass knowledge in order to hack <laughs> an exam, to use a contemporary expression, it is impossible for you to bypass wisdom in order to hack a life lived well. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She'll honor you if you embrace her. She'll place on your head a fair garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown, a well-furnished mind, a mental diet, impacting culture because we create. And by the way, I don't know of a more creative group than the very people sitting in front of me. What an opportunity to express our Christian witness by creating beautiful, God-honoring, alternative cultural artifacts. Not lamenting culture, not resigning to it, not blindly participating in it, but creating an alternative. Learning what it means to be a laborer, God's word, laborer. Finding freedom and meaning, not by doing whatever you want, not by expanding your choices, not by isolation, but through community and commitments and healthy limitations. By the way, when I say these things, 
this wisdom, it's not arbitrary rules, right? This isn't in the, the Asbury Manual. These are rules and they're principles for living well. This is for our benefit. This is taking hold of the life that really is life. This is the good life. I want every one of you to be mature spiritual Christians, but a part of maturity is getting wisdom and getting insight so that you can live your best life, the life that God has for you, so that you can edify our community and be the best version of yourself. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that we are back together. Thank you for this community. And Lord, in those limitations that we discover in community, may we also discover a fullness that we would not otherwise have. A fullness in each other and a fullness in you. And Father, I pray that we would confer healthy expressions of identity upon one another so that we know who we are, created in your image, meant for relationship with you, meant for relationship with other. Father, bless this semester for us all, for this community. And Father, in addition to being the kind of spiritual agents you desire for us, help us to be people of wisdom. Help us to be people that know and practice and liturgize into our own lives what it means to live well so that we can honor you, we can edify the community, but we can live into the fullness of what you have for us. We love you, Lord. I pray that what we do here would be hospitable to your presence and ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.